people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Solomon King. Nobody gives orders to Solomon King. He's his own man. Solomon King, he's right on. Rated R. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Leon Chase. Hey, Mike. It's great to be back. Also back in the booth is Mr. David Walker. Hey, it's great to be back, too. On this special episode, we are looking at the 1974 film from Sal Watts, Solomon King. The film tells the tale of the titular Solomon King, who is portrayed by writer and co-director Watts himself. He's a former CIA operator who becomes embroiled in international intrigue involving the Middle East. He's trying to protect the Princess Oniwa from her cousin Hassan, who has assassins in the U.S. and a mole in the CIA. Things look bleak for Solomon King, but he's got Manny and Uncle John on his side, don't you know? We are going to be spoiling this seldom-seen film, which is currently getting a restoration from Deaf Crocodile, which will be releasing it on Blu-ray and even having a few theatrical offerings. You'll hear more about that in our interview with Craig and Dennis from Deaf Crocodile, along with Sal Watts' widow, Belinda Burton Watts. I don't think there's any way that either of you guys could have seen this movie before, so I'll just ask, David, what was your first impression of Solomon King? First of all, it was actually better than I thought it would be. You know, with, with a lot of these lost movies, uh, they, it's, there's like, there's a reason it was lost. It was better and more competently made than I had anticipated. And there was even parts of it that I actually really liked. I, I described it to someone the other day. I said, yeah, imagine if either maybe Dolomite or the human tornado was made by people who knew a little bit more about film, but had no interest in being funny. <laughs> and that might be it. Uh, that may, maybe that's a little harsh. I'm going to need to watch it again, which I definitely will. So I didn't turn it off and uh, I watched it all the way through, which for me is like a major accomplishment. And Leanne, how about yourself? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the genre, the era, and also low budget in general. And um, honestly, I, I like to go into this stuff really cold, especially when somebody like you sends it to me. I don't read about it. I just put it on and see what it is. And my first thought was, wow, this is really low budget. But yet the the fashion is on point. The clothing was incredible, which I don't know if we'll get into, you know, who, who the director was in a minute. But um, I'm with David that it was actually watchable. It was, um, you know, I'm not going to say it would have won any kind of best actor award, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, it was, you know, it, it moves as, as a film. It's, I'm, I'm glad it exists. Um, uh, and like a lot of this stuff, I'm also glad he, you know, he mentioned, um, you know, the Rudy Ray Moore movies, which is another great example of this where 
even if they didn't mean it, the fact that they just didn't have a huge budget meant that you also get to see a world in a very specific time and place that I certainly wasn't privy to. So it exists, you know, on one level as an artifact and as an, on another level, just as this really interesting uh, time capsule, you know? <laughs> right. Time capsule of the Middle East crisis, this whole thing with OPEC. Yeah, he, he really nailed the nuances of, <laughs> of the Middle Eastern oil crisis. Also, the distrust of the government, that there's a mole in the CIA, and there's one guy on the inside who seems to like Solomon King, and the other guy who is selling them out. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's a very interesting movie to me. I thought that they did some stuff really, very, very clever. There are a ton of scenes where they're shot where you don't have to have the characters speaking their lines sync. Now, there are some sync parts to it, but for a lot of it, you're getting voiceovers, you're getting people in cars, you're just getting it so that you don't see their mouths. I mean, there's a lot of exposition, though, that is being given to us via voiceovers, phone calls. There's one scene in particular that I absolutely love where it is basically Hassan narrating what's going on with his man in the CIA, who's what, Weinstock, I think his name is, where uh, he's just like, you will go to a restaurant. Weinstock, I'm sending you a trained assassin to do what your CIA thugs obviously cannot. You will meet him in an outdoor restaurant, frequented by my countrymen. He will receive from you an envelope containing the whereabouts of Princess Odeba and the movements of Solomon King. You will utter a code word to which he will answer. That is all. There will be no need for protracted conversation. And then we just get right out of there. You know, you see, especially from that era, there's a bunch of these low-budget movies that had limited release, and, and they're made by people who did not know what they were doing or, or didn't have a clue. And this movie, the thing I, I, I did appreciate about this movie was they were trying, you could tell they were trying to make a better movie than than they were capable of making, as opposed to, say, you look at something like Velvet Smooth or or anything Renee Martinez directed, like um, The Guy from Harlem and, and some of these other like grade Z black exploitation movies. This was this was better than that. And I there's again, there's a sigh of relief on my part because I was just expecting something to be horrible. And and I'd already, you know, um, uh, back the Kickstarter campaign and and uh, here in town, they're going to be doing a theatrical screening of it and i i committed to hosting that screening and so it was like oh please don't let this movie suck please 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 i have some trouble sometimes with the geography of the film because i think we're starting in the middle east someplace but then they're also talking about a country it sounds like they're saying rwanda but i don't think that it's supposed to be rwanda no they i i got the impression it was a made-up fake country i didn't I, I don't even remember them naming anything specifically that's the opening one of the opening shots the opening shot is this evil wannabe overthrow the um the government guy and and it, that's from that moment on you're like oh they're ambitious aren't they they're <laughs> they're trying much harder than their budget is going to allow I would like to add that i'm not sure this film is the best representation of people from the middle east I'm not sure how authentic they were with that. 
John Leguizamo just recently had a real problem with uh, James Franco playing um, Castro. I think he would probably have a problem with this film as well. The guy who plays Hassan, he looks more like he would be in the IRA than any sort of a (laughs) Middle Eastern terrorist group. I don't know. And there's even another guy in the movie that I kept confusing him with. Yes. He's, He's the guy who sits in the car all the time and is like watching and I'm just like, oh, he he came over from the Middle East. He took his turban off, all this kind of stuff. No, it's a different dude. Thank you. I I thought that was me. I was like, are they doubling the actors here? And and I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one that was confused by that man. Yeah, well, and that's one of the first times we get to see Solomon in action, the way that he uh, comes around and sneaks up on that guy and puts the gun in his face and everything. And it's just like, ooh, Solomon King. You already know he means business from – like that black leather outfit that he's wearing, and then the really cool theme song that he has. I have to say, I really like the music in this movie. Yeah, the soundtrack was really solid, and Sal Watts is just a um, a bit of an enigma, you know? I mean, there's there's I'm still trying to piece together exactly who he was and what he was all about, for sure. What we'll hear Belinda, his widow, say later on, he is a man who had his fingers in a lot of pies, That's why he's the guy that owns the fashion store that's giving us so many of these amazing outfits, though I do feel bad for Manny and his plaid pants. Not very (laughs) flattering. Other outfits are absolutely fine, but to the point where I thought that this was going to be a comedy at first, just because of Manny in the shed, just going, it's Manny! It's Manny! Hello? Hello, this is Manny. Who? Manny! This is Manny! Oh, hell's breaking loose! Where's Solomon? Oh, Manny. Yeah, Manny. This is Manny. Let me talk to Solomon. Where's Solomon? Well, Solomon isn't here. Where is he? Albert, let me talk to Solomon. Solomon, this is Manny. Manny? Manny. Eventually, we find out, no, he's more than serious. Manny is a force to be reckoned with. But yeah, uh, Sal Watts, uh, very much an entrepreneur, had his fingers on a lot of pies. And this was just yet another venture for him to experiment in. And I also know not only with the fashions, but I think he also ran a record label. So he probably had connections that gave us this amazing soundtrack. I agree with you that that Manny's ass should maybe get its own credit. And I don't say that often. Again, it's really interesting to me because there's there's enough examples of films that are sort of like this, the ultra low budget, independently produced movies from that era, like 99% of them are just bordering on unwatchable. And and so, again, that makes me wonder, who who are the people that put this together? Because they, they managed to make something that why it never showed up on home video, all of these sort of things are, are, are part of a big question to me. Uh, you know, I don't even know how much of a theatrical release it had because it seemed for, for the longest time, like this film didn't actually exist. Like there was, you knew there was a soundtrack because it had been released and, and there was a poster, but there was, it was really difficult to find any proof that it had played anywhere. Yeah, thank goodness for sites like what is it, Temple of Schlock, where he collects all of these like newspaper ads and just really gives you the download on like, here's everything that is possibly known about this film. And then sometimes the comment sections just erupt with like, oh, my uncle was in that. Oh, I did this or I saw that at this theater. Did you know they had a screening over here? And it's like, 
I'm so thankful for sites like that. And it's weird because there's even things like Belinda doesn't know this whole black agent Lucky King, this alternate poster, probably a re-release, where it looks so handmade. It looks like you would just see this like posted up on a on a telephone pole or something. You know, when the king gets shafted, mile a minute excitement, rough and ready action, he's gonna split this town right down the middle. The CAA taught him the trade, the streets taught him the tricks, starring Sal Watts. Yeah, the graphic, it's amazing. It looks more like Wild Man Steve than Sal Watts on this. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, too. I, I, I thought it was a comedy, and knowing that, you know, they, they called it Black Agent, and so I often wondered, is he is he a secret agent, or is he like a talent agent? I honestly did not know for <laughs> years what, what the story was with this one. Um, and, and I had been in contact, this was probably 15, 20 years ago, with, with a woman who claimed to be uh, Sal Watts's daughter. Don't know if it's true or not, but she was trying to to find a copy of the movie forever. And, and you know, and we went back and forth and, and, you know, I kind of gave her some hints and I said, you know, these are the places you should look. And, and, you know, starting with uh, any basements or attics that, <laughs> that might be in your family. The story I want to know more is everything behind the scenes more than the movie itself, to be honest with you. Absolutely. Yeah, I kind of wish there was a documentary or like a making of, you know, was anybody shooting home movies around this? I talked about how I go in cold and then I rewatched after, you know, I, I read the whatever basics I could find about this. And I love coming back in and knowing like this was basically for better or for worse, like uh, somebody and all of his friends and probably his family. Like you said, oh, my cousin was in that. Like, I, I love that about this era and this genre that it really like going back and watching it and being like, oh, OK, this isn't the best acting I've ever seen. But like, wow, like he just knew all these people and, you know, they probably had like three hours to do whatever scene they were doing and like that there's just there's a special kind of energy and i agree with what both of you said that like i would just love to know more about like the making of would almost be more fascinating to me than the actual story they told because the sound in this film is pretty darn good and i talked about all this the times where they're doing voiceovers for stuff so i wasn't sure why they weren't adring certain things like there's one scene where I think it's when Princess Oniwa first shows up at his place and his friend, who's not his girlfriend, because she makes very much a point to say that she's not in love with him, but his friend, who is a female, brings him some clothes for her. I think this is the scene where you can hear a dog barking on the soundtrack a lot. And I'm just like, why didn't you re-record that? Like, of all the things, and especially because you're not really facing the camera that much. So just yeah, re-record this one. So pretty here. My, you sure has grown. Are you cold? I'm cold. You have any clothes? Just what I have on. Well, we have Albert to get you some clothes tomorrow. Okay. okay. I think you should go to bed, too. I was very confused by that moment as well, to the point where I think I stopped it to see if that was actually my neighbor's dog. Right? <laughs> I did the same darn thing last night. I was like, wait a second, is that from in here? There were definitely some choice moments in there. I'm eager to watch it again, but, you know, as we're talking about the making of and behind the scenes, as, as somebody who loved Dolomite, you know, I've got a 
Dolomite poster hanging in my room right now. I loved the the Netflix movie, the um, the Dolomite is my name with Eddie Murphy. And I, I would have loved it even there's documentaries that are on all four of the Rudy Ray Moore Blu-rays. I think that Vinegar Syndrome might have put out, although I could be wrong. It might not be Vinegar Syndrome. I, I mean, I just go bonkers for that stuff. There's there's this part of me that's going, well, if there is anything out there, maybe I'll be the one to uh, put that documentary together, even if it's a 15, 20 minute feature. I mean, uh, featurette, I should say. I have so many questions about so many movies from that era and most of them go unanswered and you know my big thing is like how much of this stuff was produced with laundered money with drug money of some kind and and um and i suspect there's there's probably a lot more than we realize you know yeah i don't think they advertise that no they don't but but there's a couple like um well renee martinez was a was a he was out of miami i think he made some of the worst movies I've ever seen, the, definitely the worst black exploitation movies. And I suspect there was some, there was some drug money involved. And, and I've heard rumors about it's got a couple of different titles, but the, the most popular one is Black Fist. And that movie just has an incredible behind the scenes. And I've, I've heard from some sources who were, uh, really close to that production that it was all, it was all drug money that, that was used to fund it. So I don't know. And I love to imagine that that's the case anyway, because it makes it all that much more interesting. We're talking about a sort of ground level music club scene that is certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Let's put it that way. Well, we do have scenes that are shot at a club, which is pretty typical for a lot of films. And I just love those amazing shots of the audience. And especially there's one moment where he's going through and just giving us like, okay, here's a three shot with these folks. Here's a two shot over here. And just kind of giving us some establishment as far as who's in this club. And again, the fashions are on point and just the music that's playing again, great soundtrack. But yeah, just seeing like these are just regular folks. These are people that he probably said, like, Hey, do you want to be in this movie? I need you to come to this club and show up at this time. I. Absolutely love that. Some of that footage, some of the footage of the band playing, definitely probably could have used a second or maybe even third camera on some of that stuff. Some of it gets kind of rough, but the music itself, really good. I love the Sheila song that gets played through there. And what's the gal's name? Sonequa, I think it is, later on. The one that there's an amazing telephone call that she has with O'Malley, the uh, CIA guy. And there's just one insert shot of him, and the rest of it is her on the phone. You never hear O'Malley's voice whatsoever, and she just does all of the whole, like, Oh, you think I should be a singer? You want me to follow Solomon Kane? The Solomon Kane? Yes, O'Malley. Suggestions? Uh-huh. Yeah. Nightclub act. Mm-hmm. Singing undercover. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you very much, O'Malley. Bye. But her song is a little ridiculous. It kind of reminds me of that moment in I'm Gonna Get You Sucka where they walk into the club and it's Keenan Ivory Wayne's sister singing like crazy. Who is that? That's the director's sister. 
you know, I used the term time capsule earlier and, and again, back to the Dolomite movies, like there is that sense where I'm like, I'd like to see the extras that are just like three hours of who was playing that club. Because again, with that era, you get this sense of like just the talent and like the kind of like the wild fashions and everything that was going on in those places. Like I definitely, the energy goes way up when they get to the club scene because you know, they're just kind of filming what was already going on there. I have to say the acting in the movie is not bad. You know, I was talking about Manny earlier and that I thought he was kind of doing a comic thing, but he ends up being pretty solid. Uncle John, I was surprised when he gives his monologue later on the film, pretty solid as well. I think Princess Oniwa is probably the weakest link of the film, especially there's a moment when they're cooking towards the beginning and she just kind of loses her shit. And I've watched that scene like two or three times now, and I still can't figure out why she just starts to cry hysterically. <laughs> but I wanted I the same you. thing. I, I <laughs> Okay, good. I'm glad it wasn't just me. I got to tell you, my, my wife was wandering in and out as I was watching this movie in my living room and, you know, sort of she was just kind of clocking what it was and then at one point she walked in right during that moment and i said and now for some reason it's a cassavetes movie <laughs> i guess they did right by having her killed off pretty early in the movie but there's that scene where she is bothering solomon where he's trying to do like paperwork or something and she just is on him like flies on shit and that's a good moment of levity there when she's asking him, like, do you wish I was quiet? And he's like, mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, no, no, you're fine. <laughs> I, I wasn't too sad when she expired. And then I don't think he was too sad either. He just had that little flashback of her on the beach. And then he was betting another person. Might have been betting Tanya Boyd right after that because he jumps from bed to bed to bed in this movie quite a bit. Yeah. If he was truly grieving – he was masking that grief with promiscuity. He was he was he was doing the uh, the 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 fornication form of uh, of grieving. We all process in our own way. Apparently. Yes, we do, and and that was interesting too because it was just like you know the thing we haven't talked about is Mister Watts himself, former CIA agent. He's also a Green Beret. He's clearly on the Rudy Ray Moore diet. You know, he's he's he is not really a leading man actor or or physique honestly that made me appreciate the movie a little bit more you know it was like it was this i have this idea of just this guy going i'm gonna make a movie and i'm gonna play the lead because i know what i can do and you know not trusting anyone else that sort of thing and and we've seen enough movies over the years again with you mentioned wild man steve here was a guy who was actually a professional performer, but he's one of the worst actors you've ever seen, you know? So wild man, Steve and Lloyd Hawkins and Owen Watson. I mean, there's a long list of, of, of these actors who showed up in maybe one or two movies never to be seen again. And, and I'm endlessly fascinated with those guys too, because they're, and, and a lot of them aren't with us anymore. And, and te you mentioned Temple Schlock. That's one of the, the, the few websites that even you can get any sort of information at all. Similar to like if you if you go back to like very early like you know the beginning of movies in general you have these eras where the budgets were obviously so tight and I don't think there was a real sense of history 
And now I'm sitting here like, oh, my God, I wish somebody would have, like, written down what was going on. I wish somebody was filming this. I wish that, like, anybody was kind of documenting it while it was happening. But, you know, while it was happening, they were probably just like, please, God, let me get this thing done. Yeah, running and gunning, basically. So So I was thrilled to see Tanya Boyd in this movie. I was surprised. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I wasn't either. And for a moment, she didn't look like her, but it wasn't until she started to. You really are hurting, aren't you, Daddy? I heard about what happened to the princess. You shouldn't blame yourself. Who should I blame? Who killed her? That don't mean nothing. It was my responsibility to protect her. Hey, stop this, Solomon. You don't have to explain anything to me. Hey, it's me, Sheila. I understand what you're going through. Let me help you. Maybe together we can find the answer. I just was getting Brenda from Black Shampoo. I worked for this guy before I came here. He wanted to keep me. I mean, the whole bit. Sadie's jewels. Stay at his mansion. Couldn't dig it and I left. I don't know. Maybe I should leave town or something. That's bullshit. What I don't understand is what all the strong on business is about. Hey, nobody walks out on him. Nobody. I was so happy that she showed up in this. I think she might be the only actor in this movie with actual credits, right? Because, um, yeah, she's and she's probably the best part of Black Shampoo. And and wasn't she in like one of the Elsa movies? Or Yeah, I think Harem Keeper of the Oil Sheiks. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was... She was an interesting actress. I, I, then she went on to do like uh, soap operas or something like that. Oh yeah, for a lot of years. Yeah, I was very happy to see her. Obviously, as as a Black Shampoo fan, and as you know from our Black Shampoo conversation, like I'm a big, I, I'm always like noticing the actor who's been handed maybe a, not a great scene, but is still kind of killing it. Like you know that she's the pro. Like David said. You know, you you immediately if if you ask me to watch that movie and say who here had some kind of a career like Tanya Boyd is just she just shines and she's been handed whatever to read and she's still above and beyond whoever she's in the room with. So yeah, Tanya, if you're out there, like thank you, well done, seriously. <laughs> and and how did you get involved with this movie, Tanya? If you're still around, inquiring minds want to know. We we all have this love of B movies, schlock movies, whatever you want to call them. And, and again, the, it's, it's such a poorly recorded history. A number of these movies are, are lost or hard to find. And, and, and then when you get a movie like this, where pretty much, you know, with the exception of one actress, nobody knows who any of these folks are. And that's when it just sort of becomes fascinating because one of the things I was thinking was, well, you know, it was shot in, in and around Oakland. And, and then I started thinking, well, I wonder if any of the people who worked on this movie, were crew people when they shot the map, which was shot just like 18 months earlier. Yeah, this is all the weird stuff I start thinking. David, I'm with you 100%. I I go down that same rabbit hole where I'm, you know, I always speculate on what if they had a budget? What if they had more time? Like, what if these people had more opportunities? So many stories about that era are just about people, like I said, just trying to get it done. Or they're just like, we were just so happy to be like, to have a job or to be in any kind of movie. So like, I'm always like, you know, I watch something like this and I'm, you know, knowing a little bit about the production side of things. I'm always like, wow, what would you have done with like a few more days in the editing room? Which makes me very excited to see the restoration, by the way, you know, or what would you have done with a little more time 
you know, for, for acting or a little more time for whatever. Like it's, you know, like so this stuff, as we've said, was made on such a shoestring. And I'm always interested to sort of speculate like, well, what could these people have done with a little bit more? I, uh, you know, what movie I actually thought of a couple times as I was, as I was watching this was I, I thought of Larry Cohen's Hell Up in Harlem a few times. That movie was put together on a wing and a prayer. You know, it was, it was shot. Um, and when, and if you really watch it, you can tell Fred Williamson isn't with the rest of the cast most of the time. It's a lot of, there was, it was, there was a ridiculously short amount of time between the release of Black Caesar and then the making and then release of Hell Up in Harlem. And, and I started thinking while I was watching Solomon King, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, this movie looks like what Hell Up in Harlem would have looked like if it had no name actors in it at all. And if it didn't have, I'm trying to remember who did the, did the soundtrack for that one. I think it was Edwin Starr. Um, which one did, uh, James Brown do? He did, he did Black Caesar. Black Caesar. And, and then he was supposed to do Hell Up in Harlem. He ended up doing, uh, slaughter's big ripoff of no there's i I get the story confused i know that there was a he kind of bumped heads with people at aip with sam arkoff over the black caesar soundtrack and he ended up releasing an album called payback which was meant to be a soundtrack but i can't remember which one so my brain isn't as good as it used to be but yeah, there was, there was definitely moments where I did, I was thinking like what we were just saying, like, well, what would have happened if there was a little bit of money or what would have happened, you know, if, if Fred Williamson had been in this lead role would, you know, because here's the thing, right? I'll, I'll, I'll come out and say this. this Solomon King is better than most of the movies Fred Williamson directed, right? You know, like you watch something like Mean Johnny Borrows or, 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 um, death journey and this is on par with that and 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 fred williamson had more experience in in film so that's the thing that i find interesting well that's why i'm so curious about jack bomay the co-director how did you pull this off i mean there were known people like chuck cowell is one of the credited uh cinematographers he's the same guy that was uh working camera and electrical on a ton of um james cameron films Solomon King was one of his first gigs, but it's kind of like how, you know, Dean Cundy got to start working on Black Shampoo. Yeah, or or uh, Ernest Dickerson got started working on what he had. He did a couple doozies. He did Death by Temptation, Enemy Territory. Yeah, a lot of like the stuff that ended up coming out direct to video in the in the early to mid 80s. So the other camera operator was no slouch either. He uh, coming to America, Three Amigos, um, yeah, The Fletch Lives, so uh, Pretty Woman, so a few things that we've seen, even Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. I think he did the right thing, which is you surround yourself with people that have a lot of promise or already are super talented. So it's like these guys had a lot of promise and they it paid off for all of them. This is where I play amateur film historian a little bit for the young folks out there. That you also, I think it's important to understand that this whole idea of like, oh, hey, I know somebody with a decent enough video camera didn't exist back then. Like, if you wanted to shoot something, like what it took to not only pay for the film, but also have someone who understood how to actually like use the camera and expose it properly and do the, the gazillion lost art things that took 
like everything it took to make the the crappiest movie we've ever seen back then you know like you kind of had to get those guys you had to get somebody who you know whether they were in the, they were in the union or not i don't know but like they had to at least understand how to operate a camera so they're probably if you were going to skimp that probably wasn't the department you skimped on i haven't done the deep dive of research of of the all the crew but it makes me think were they people that had worked together on something before did they all go to usc together was was there a connection um because that's another thing that would happen and you saw it in especially like roger corman's movies where everybody kind of knew everybody else and so the the camera operator the dp would you know bring along the camera operator that he knew and it was somebody that they went to school with so and that's why i think there's always an there, there's there's always some semblance of an interesting story it's just a question of, of digging around finding it and and then um and connecting the dots and and it's you know do you want to work that hard to connect the dots and and as we're saying all this stuff and i and i'm thinking about all the other pressing deadlines i have the answer is well yeah maybe i should just procrastinate and go down that rabbit hole and try to figure out, you know, who knows everybody and, and how they knew each other. Cause I'm looking at some of these other credits as well. The first assistant camera, he's got tons of credits, the production manager, he's got tons of credits and even some of the actors. I mean, the man that plays Hassan, uh, he was, well, he was a makeup artist first so I wouldn't be surprised if he was doing makeup for this movie as well. He w- worked on Angels from Hell, Hell's Angel 69, and Massacre Mafia style, and where he also played the role of Zantelli. So I would not be surprised at all if he was also doing makeup on this one. Maybe that's why he's just like, oh, this other guy kind of looks like me. I think I'll really emphasize that. <laughs> And then uh, Luisito, the guy that plays O'Malley, and you can tell when O'Malley's on screen that he's got some gravitas. I mean, he wasn't in a ton of stuff, but at least he's got you know a lot more credits, and he had been working since 1957. So when he's on screen, you're like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm in the hands of a capable actor, kind of like when Tanya Boyd is on screen. And I have to say, the thing that I was so disappointed with is that. So her character's name is Sheila, and they're doing the song about Sister Sheila at the club, and then they reprised the song later on, and I was just like, wait a second, where's Tanya Boyd? She was just in that one scene? She just had the one, he just pumped her and dumped her, and that was it? Come on! Yeah, no, there's, um, well, oh god, who's the the baseball player who makes, uh... Oh, Tito Fuentes! Yeah, Tito Fuentes, it's it's almost like, I feel like Okay, I'm going to give you four hours of my time, and that's it. You know, you don't you don't get any more. That might have been the oddest scene in in the movie, right? Where it's just like he shows up at a baseball field, a baseball diamond, and talks to Tito Fuentes for two or three minutes, and then just walks off. It reminded me of those movies where the main character has to be good at everything. Like, I'm surprised he and Tito didn't have, like, a whatever, a baseball rally or whatever they would call that, a home run rally. And they're just, like, you know, knocking it over the fence. And then it's like, oh, you're too good for me, Solomon. The best way to have done that would have been Solomon goes onto the pitcher's mound and, and like, oh, he's he's actually a former, uh, you know, college baseball player who was an all-star pitcher and he's able to strike out this guy this is where if i were to do a spoof of this movie what's great about this movie is that it has all the elements that are easily spoofed but in and of itself it is not 
quite spoof worthy. And a lot of times you'll see uh, movies from this era and, and even both before and later where the boom mic makes itself seen. There's only one time in this one, and it's not even the boom, it's the shadow of the boom that I saw. Yeah, and, and it's also interesting because a lot of times when the boom shows up, it's because um, when stuff was released on home video, it wasn't released in the proper aspect ratio. I mean, that's I, I didn't figure that out till many years later, but that was the thing that got me was, I, I'm not seeing that many shots of the boom mic. Um, that That in and of itself is sort of impressive to me. Well, the shot that gets me, and I know Dennis talks about this later in the interview, is the shot of the princess on the balcony and the way that we pull way back and then we are suddenly in an over-the-shoulder shot of the assassin who's got the the rifle trained on her. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's really nice. There are a couple times where it's just like, all right, you probably should have shot this in slow motion because this is obviously like a process slow motion. But there were a couple legit slow-mo scenes in here where I was like, oh, well, that actually looks pretty good. There was one where uh, Sal does a stunt, and he kind of does like a – it comes into the room, and he rolls, and I guess he gets back up. And I'm just like, I- I- am I supposed to be impressed by this? <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminded me of like Jordy LaForge like rolling under the door as it's coming down. It's like Jordy could have just – Go on. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that said, I have to say, like again, for for the for the budget of this movie, the action is not bad. Like the action's pretty strong through most of it. Now this movie moves too. There's no scene in this movie where I'm just like, oh shit, it's this scene. I might as well go get some popcorn or something. Everything is moving at a pretty good clip. And yeah, I'm excited to see the restoration as well. Cause I noticed there were a couple times where you just get like a weird, like real quick shot where it looks like it was cut off. And I don't think that that's how it really is. So I'm so excited to see this. And then also just for the listeners at home, the print that we saw was pretty darn pink. So there's a couple times, especially in that nightclub when they're using a red light in the nightclub and people are just really washed out. I'm, I am so excited to see this, and I'm so jealous of you, David, for being able to see this on the big screen. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and I'll be looking forward just to seeing, to studying again on um, on um, when the when the disc comes out from from Deaf Crocodile, because you know a lot of times if you do manage to stumble across you know a quote unquote lost picture, it's the picture quality is terrible, or you know it's um or it's it's off of like a three quarter master or, or a TV dub or something like that. And it's, it's pretty rare that something shows up even, even in the, 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 um, the screener that, that we watched, that was still better picture quality than some of the other stuff I've seen over the years. And, and, and again, you know, I, I, we're probably all of us obsessed with, um, those lost movies. And then, and then you, you see them. Uh, you know, for me, one of them was there's a movie that Patrick McGowan directed called Catch My Soul that I was like endlessly fascinated with for, for the better part of 30, 40 years. And then I finally saw it and I was like, uh, okay, this, this, you know, and, and, and I, I actually bought the Blu-ray of it, spent way too much money on oh, it. Boy. We'll probably never watch it again, but there's, there's the, uh, the, the amateur film historian in me that feels like when the opportunity is there to get a movie like this, get it, 
because you don't want it to be lost again. You don't want it to disappear again. I, I never had the, 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 the catch my soul. What am I watching here feeling? So, so there, there was that. That was good. The print of this looks better than what we watched on VHS for years, especially of um, Candy Tangerine Man, oh, where, yeah. where it was just purple throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, are there people there? Oh, th- this is another thing that I've had to explain to, uh, shall we say, the youngsters sometimes, where I'm like, yeah, a lot of these things you see are the result of probably going through multiple movie theaters, and the film was probably broken, and a lot of what you're perceiving as bad cutting was probably just somebody splicing it together on the fly, and this is the best surviving print they could find, which that makes me, much like a lot of the other movies we talked about, it makes me really excited to see a restored version of this because... You know, I would, I would love to, like, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that a lot of what we're perceiving as like really clumsy mistakes was probably the result of that kind of thing. No, I saw, uh, years ago, I saw a, a 35 millimeter print of the Mac and it was the worst movie. It, like, I love the Mac. That's one of my favorite movies, but this was not only was it a bad 35 millimeter print, it was from a, a British release. So it was already edited heavily for the UK. And then the print itself was beat up. And, and I remember I took some friends of mine. This had to have been about 20 years ago. I took some friends of mine to the theater to see this thing. And they were all like, I, you know, I thought you said this movie was good. And I was like, it, it is. Um, I don't know what's happening here. And then it was afterwards that I, I did the research and figured it out. And um, it, again, the, there's so much people don't know so much about film in general and what is written about film tends to be about, you know, when we talk about the seventies, people know a lot about the Godfather or, or Jaws or Star Wars movies like that, but that's such a small percentage of what was out there. And in a lot of ways, that was the end of the era of the grindhouse and the drive-ins, um, because that, that they just gave way to direct to home video and cable after that. I don't think that there is much, yeah, and you use the word clumsy. It doesn't feel like a clumsy film. It feels like they really, kind of knew what they were doing yeah some of the performances are a little clunky some of the dialogue that kind of stuff but yeah i just i had a a really fun time and i i can't imagine watching this with an audience because i mean as soon as i saw it the first time i was just like hey check this out you know (laughs) like you're you're gonna want to see this because this is something special i think even the worst films deserve to survive in some capacity a lot of hard work goes into this stuff. Even even the worst movies, a lot of hard work goes into them. No one sets out to make garbage. I, I just feel there's this amateur historian in me that is, what does it take to get your group of friends together, especially back in those days, and shoot a movie, whether it was on 35 or 16? Um, it's a lot easier now than it was then, for sure. So, yeah, I'm I'm hoping some more stuff turns up. Like, there's maybe some production notes or something. And if not, we can still just enjoy it for what it is. Personally, I don't know what it was like to be in the black club scene in 1974 in Oakland. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, thank you. Yes, please. Like at the very least, like show me this, let me see this just as, as a historical thing. The problem is, is that there's so many of these movies were, that were made all the way up into the late seventies where maybe there was only three or four prints struck and and if somebody was you know smart enough to hold on to the rights themselves you know maybe they had a print that again was like in somebody's basement or 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 whatever and and then it gets lost 
there's there's some movies that I, it, it boggles my mind that they don't exist. Like like how can there not be a print of some of these things? Um, I just had a conversation with someone not that long ago because they were talking about uh, this Richard Pryor film, this famous Richard Pryor film from the late sixties. Um, but Penelope Spheris worked on it, and I talked to her and I said, "What do you think happened to it? There's no known prints. There's no nothing." And and she had said that she was pretty sure that Bill Cosby had the only existing print and that she thought Cosby had, had invested some money in it for one reason or another and, and managed to get his hands on the print, which doesn't sound that unrealistic when you realize Cosby um, also invested in sweet, sweet backs, badass songs. So, and, and this would have been before that, because this was like 68, 69. I want to say it was like um, the, the title of the movie was like, Tales of Uncle Tom or yeah, something Uncle like Tom's that. Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales, yeah. That's it, Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Melinda Burton Watts along with Craig Rogers and Des Bartok from Deaf Crocodile. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios belinda when did you first meet sal watts and can you tell me what your world was like back then i lived in oakland down the street from the black panther office i was 19 and i just became smitten with him and uh it was my first time out. I had a boyfriend, and I met him through a boyfriend. And like I told Dennis, he was quite a gambler. And I was just impressed with him. You know, he he just seemed like such a regular guy, you know. And I like the fact that he carried his, his wallet in his back like my dad did. But a lot of people that I knew always kept their money in the front pocket. So, you know, it's the little things that impress you with a person. And I met him and he just swept me off my feet, you know, pretty much stole me away from my boyfriend. And we went to Los Angeles and the rest is history. What year was this? Let me see. It had to be 69. Wow. The world was a pretty turbulent place in 1969, especially out in Oakland. It was unbelievable. You saw a crossroads of the Communist Party, Black Panther Party, the the kids up on the campus, you know, it was volatile, to say the least. And, you know, in reading the script, I think that there was a little Angela Davis in there. I think originally they were trying to do something maybe too political, you know. I was just impressed with him, met him fell for him and he was just good to me always good to me it sounds like sal was kind of an entrepreneur between Absolutely. the movie and then he also was he owned a suit shop is that right yeah he had a clothing store as well as a manufacturing shop above the store and he, he had everything you know he he uh, tried a lot of things 
very ambitious. I compare him to a lot of the young people, you know, the puff daddies and the, you know, the young black entrepreneurs that just want to make something happen. In my mind, he was one of the originals. And where did the movie come from? Actually, out in Oakland, he had a television show. On his show, it was kind of a variety show, similar to Living Color. But he uh, met with Mantan Morlin, which is a actor, you know, wonderful guy who would come and stay with us when he was going to do the show in Oakland. And that's what I think really turned Sal onto the possibilities of being a filmmaker. It started with the TV show, and that kind of wet his whistle. And then he wanted more. And Mantan gave him the confidence to know it's possible. You know, that was the beginning. And that man, Tam Moreland, is amazing. You know, I look back at his old films, you know, he really had a style. And I he told me he had been through Omaha and me being, you know, thinking, well, did you know Art Burton, my dad? And he said, well, I stayed with a guy named Brandeis. And, you know, my, my jaw hit the floor because this was the guy in Omaha, you know, so wealthy. He owned Brandeis department stores and stuff. So I said, he would have never met my dad if he's hanging in those circles, you know. But Mantan was a wonderful person who gave Sal confidence in himself and also got him connected with uh, the Masons. And Sal became a 33 and a third degree Mason as a result of his relationship with Mantan which is where a person would want to be, no matter what they're trying to do. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the folks behind the film? Like, who is Jack Bomay? How does he enter into this? I didn't know his associates that well. Basically, I just kind of stayed out of everything. I didn't meet those guys. I knew Scars, so I knew some of them. But, you know, I've stayed in Berkeley when he was doing this, you know, he needed his, he needed his space. Relationships can sometimes get in the way of a person fulfilling their dream. And I just believed in him. Of course, we know that there are casting couches. So I didn't choose. I mean, why put yourself through that? (laughs) So, you know, I believed in him. He was a good guy. And by then, we had been together quite a while. So I met him when I was 19. And I think he didn't make the film till I was about 23. Pretty ambitious to make a feature film, not only co-direct it and write it, and then also star in it as well. Absolutely. He was that kind of guy. And it's funny. Way after this, he'd say, I'm nothing. You know, I'm no big deal. So humble, you know, and I says, well, how many people do you know that can have an idea and see it to fruition? You know, this doesn't happen for all of us. We all have dreams, but he was a special kind of guy. You know, he really didn't sleep much. I think that's one of the things that makes a person uh, accomplish a lot of things. It's a toll on your body. But uh, he was always busy and, you know. I had a very comfortable life, so it's all good with me, you know. When's the first time you get to see Solomon King? Right away. You know, as soon as it was completed, it was 
available in theaters, you know, within six months or so. And I was caught coming out of the theater. And this guy said, oh, you know, like, you're so hung up on yourself that you come see yourself, even though I had a really tiny part. But still, you know, yeah, I wanted to see the reaction of other people. So it was exciting. And we also saw it at the drive-in. And my brother, who was in the film, had his little three-year-old daughter with him or something. And she was so sad when he was shot. And he said, here I am, baby. I'm not dead. But, you know, that was cute. Basically, it was a family film, you know. And he was able to take that to the big screen. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your role. What was that like being in front of the cameras? That was fine. It didn't frighten me at all. It was like that was my big payday or payoff. Be good. Be silent. You know, you'll have your moment in the sun. So he tells me, okay, we got to go to Desilu Studios and you have to drive. Well, of course, I'm, you know, I'm pissed, but then I'm excited. And our baby Joyce, she got to be in it. I had great opportunity to raise Sal's daughter who came to live with us in California. And she's from Mississippi, his hometown. And she's so sweet, such a good girl. And she say, Belinda, am I country? They tell me I'm country. But you know, she's just a doll. I just love her. She's a sweet girl. So we were excited to get to be in Daddy's movie. Did he ever think about making a second film? Absolutely. He tried to end the film, which was with me, in a way to say, oh, here we go again. That's originally what, because I was going to say, oh, I've had trouble in my country. They were trying to overthrow my dad. Could you please come help? And that was what was supposed to happen. But, you know, (laughs) looking back at the uh, so-called script, it just seems like Sal did whatever the hell he wanted to do. And, you know, it's like, I need a script. So I have a script, but I'm not going to follow it. I'm going to do was like, I think, off the top of his head. He did what felt right for him. So I guess, you know, he had a vision or something, you know, and had the money and the wherewithal to make people do what he wanted, I guess, you know. I'm not sure when the movie disappeared, but I know for me as a film fan, it was very, it was until now impossible to see other the only real remnant of it for a long time the only proof that it existed was the poster and then the soundtrack album that was it it was that was so difficult to to find that stuff and i think the soundtrack album is actually where dennis and craig kind of fit into the story that's what moved him dennis liked the album you know and the the uh, album i love and i find it a little bobby womack-ish you know there's you know, and that's the time. It was the soul, you know. Uh, he also had a record label, you know, and he had a lot of local artists. And like I told Dennis, he had things I didn't even know about, you know. And that's the way an entrepreneur works, you know. Of course, his girlfriend's had as much property as I did. And I said, you know, I learned this later. But what a guy, you know, he was so fair to me. You know, he was just really a, I I admire him even more, you know, the more I learn about him. And I knew a lot about him. I find him extremely humble. That was his greatest quality. 
His humility, yeah. And everybody was of value as far as he was concerned. Like there's a saying, I don't pay more for tenor than I do for bass. And that's the way he was. So Dennis, tell me about when you first ran across the Solomon King soundtrack album. I was in uh, one of my favorite used vinyl stores in LA, which is Record Surplus over on the West Side. And they had a copy of the, the soundtrack that was released on Sal Wah Records, which was just one of Sal's two record labels. And I'd never heard of the film before. I bought it, took it home, played it. And it was just fantastic. Early 70s soul funk by local artists that Sal had discovered. And I want to know more about the movie. Started looking online. All the references said it's a lost film. and I said, well, you know, that's what Craig and I do. We find lost films. And so I talked with him and we kind of naively said, oh, we'll find this one. And miraculously, and, and with Belinda's enormous help and the help of others, we have, which is, <laughs> I know it sounds kind of crazy. Like nobody's seen this movie in 45 years and we're just going to go out and find it. It wasn't that easy, but we were able to locate an original 35 millimeter print of the film in the collection of the UCLA Film and TV Archive, which they have very generously made available as the basis for us to scan and do the picture restoration, which Craig can talk about. And then Belinda had the original 35 millimeter soundtrack elements in her closet for over 25 years. So we have you know wonderful sound. As far as we know, the camera negative for the film is is lost probably was was lost or unfortunately destroyed decades ago. The print at UCLA is the best available material. But it took a while before we could even connect with Belinda. We found a, an obituary for Sal online, but it didn't mention any of his film or music, the TV work, executive producing, the Jay Payton show. It just said Sal Watts of Mr. Sal's Fashions. So we didn't actually know that that was the Sal Watts we were looking for. And I connected online on Facebook with several Oakland history film music groups. One of the members said, I think this is the Sal Watts you're looking for. And through that, we were able to actually track Belinda down living outside of the Bay Area. And that's where really everything took off from there. Like I told Dennis, this is a case of divine intervention. And I've got a family that's eclectic in their belief. We run the gambit. But anyway, um, well, I listened um, first because who answers their phone? And Dennis is talking. And so I enjoyed what he was saying. You know, it piqued my interest. I said, it's not somebody looking for money for their campaign. So I spoke with him and I told Dennis, I've got the movie. I thought I had the movie because I sent away for it, you know, and there it was in the closet. So we were excited about that. He's thinking, wow, we've got the movie. But through, I mean, of course, I'm not techno technology savvy. So my daughter, Brittany, would talk with Dennis and Craig and they'd tell her what to do and, you know, so she goes through the film and they realize that this is not the film. This is the sound, you know, but still, maybe that's worth something. So we had, we sent the film 
Well, we sent what we had to Dennis, and then they took over, you know, and and made it happen. And it was faded, horrible, you know, nothing. And now they've turned this into a masterpiece. You know, it's so beautiful. I mean, I could even see the dirt under my husband's nails, which I wanted to get on him about. It's just amazing to me. So they've done everything. Without them, I have nothing. That is so not true. We're really here just to preserve and and shine a light to make available what you and Sal and your collaborators did in the early 70s and, and hopefully to tell Sal's and your story, the larger story of, of his involvement with the music scene and fashion, the television. I mean, his accomplishments... We kind of refer to him like he's, he was the Barry Gordy of, of Oakland at that time because he was involved in so many different, incredibly ambitious and creative areas. He owned restaurants. And for us, that was as exciting as the film itself is, uh, you know, Sal should be in all of the history books of that period in, in Oakland history. And the fact that when he passed away, it didn't mention it. Any of that to us is just like, okay, that's a huge omission. And so we're hoping to tell Sal's story, your story, along with restoring and making the film available. You know, all of us are guilty of not even bringing that up. You know, I guess because he downplayed it so much, we didn't think about the rest of it. And, you know, his early life, like living in Mississippi, You know, that, in my estimation, is one of the worst places in the world for a black man to try and survive. You know, it's amazing what he went through. And he got out of Mississippi, thank God, through the military, really. You know, your first chance to get anywhere away from Mississippi, you'll probably do anything. And he, you know, he did, but he wanted so much more. And that came, I think, from childhood. His older brother, Herman, told me he's always wanted to take care of everyone, you know, because he sent for his mom and dad when he got established in California. He wanted, he just loves his family. He's quite a guy. Belinda, can you go into a little more detail about what happened to Sal in the military? Because it's not, it wasn't just his ticket out. He experienced unbelievable brutality and and racism in the military that is just heartbreaking. Yes. Well, I want to remind you, Dennis, the story I told about Sal being quite young and his parents were were, uh, like sharecroppers, basically. He went at a young age to do some work because, you know, black folks have to work from the day they're born. Not quite that soon, but They get a hard lesson quick in life, you know. So he went to work for this white woman. And Herman, his older brother, tells me that the woman, the owner of the home, comes out and gives, puts some buttermilk and cornbread in a tin. And that was their lunch. And my husband said, I'm not eating that shit at a young age, you know, at a young age. And Herman said, that he was always worried for his little brother because Sal spoke his mind in in Mississippi. That will get you killed. So he told the lady, oh, my brother, 
don't mind him. He doesn't know what he's saying, you know. But that's how Sal has always been. If something's not right, he's going to call you out on it. So um, so that was just one thing that happened. So Herman joins the military, and his brother said, I want to, you know, want to join the military. And he says he goes up to a black man who's got on a Marine outfit. He says, I love that, you know. And he said, here's a chance for us to get out of Mississippi. So he joins the Marines. And then shortly, well, when Sal's able to, he was probably 18, he joins the military. He's in the Army. So he, his worst experience in the Army is when he thought he had some buddies, these white boys, and they were friends in the Army. And Sal says they're on a train or something. And he says when they passed the Mason-Dixon line, his friends just flipped on him and changed. And they ended up, they were in a football game, and they tackled him and busted his kidney. So they call it a, a military accident or whatever, but he could have died. You know, he was urinating blood. And he says this black nurse said, son, you know, this is serious and just put him at the front of the line and pretty much saved his life. So that's when he lost his kidney. And so, you know, he's a kid and he lost his kidney. And that's when he's able to leave the military. And his brother Herman lets him recuperate on his couch, you know, and Sal had a wife and kids in Mississippi. But, you know, he was out of the service, so he was recuperating. And I think that's part of his love for film because he loved cowboys, but he loved Audie Murphy in particular. And Audie Murphy was that guy who had been downtrodden. You know, I see a lot of meshing of, you know, what a guy, you know, kids always have a hero. That was his hero and Audie Murphy was fair and good and kind and, you know, didn't use violence unless he had to. And, you know, so I think he kind of got hooked on film then. And it was all just a dream, you know. And like I've often said about Sal, oh, that, you know, the poem where they say, oh, that your reach exceeds your, his grasp. And the problem was, Sal only ever really wanted a nice home and a nice car. He got 15 homes, 15 cars, you know, and he didn't know what to want anymore. He was so able to achieve everything he thought, you know, it happened. So that's what I say. A man has to look out. They have to always want something, be seeking something, because, you know, when you achieve it, we all know that it's already lost its luster. The minute we achieve it, well, on to the next. It was terrible that he got hurt, but he was able, like I say, I was his advocate. And after we got married and everything, I felt like he won the whole war. Doggone it, he should be compensated. And he was. But, you know, what a price to pay, because when you lose a kidney, it's it's a downhill battle, basically, because you're just always trying to maintain that homeostasis, but you can't because you're missing a very important part in your body. So 
God bless him. I just, he's so tough. You know, he went through all that. He's quite a guy. And that's part of being black in this society. And, and particularly Mississippi, where they treat you so bad. Belinda, one of my very favorite lines in Solomon King, you wrote, isn't that, can you share that with, with Mike? One of the most iconic lines in the movie when he burst into the Sugar Hill Club. Right. Well, Sally had told me, oh, I got to have something to say when we go to the bar, you know, and I don't know what I should say. And I wrote that he should say, don't you know that the days of Uncle Remus and Old Black Joe are gone? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Well, that's what I wrote. But Sal altered it a little and said, don't you know that he said the days of Uncle Remus and Old Black Joe are gone. But then he changed it and said, if you don't stand for, you're going to fall for these fools. And they don't send, he said, you're going to heaven because they don't send fools to jail. So, you know, that was off the top of his head. And I liked it. And then he said, some people don't listen to a thing you say. And I really liked that. That was cute. But it was all just kind of how he felt. <laughs> and when he went after that guy with that beer bottle, I said, no, that's the real sound. Like, saying, do you know who the hell you messing with? You know, and he was tough. He was tough, but he was sweet, too. And like I told Dennis, when I first met him, you know, they liked to gamble. And Sal was quite a gambler. And he was, you know, it's like a senior messing with a kindergartner as far as gambling and what these guys could do. <laughs> and this sweet fellow, Barrington, uh, sold. Sal bought his car. And, you know, they were gambling and Sal bought his car. So he's got 1500 or something. He thinks he has a bankroll. So he tells Sal, let's gamble. Now, look, he just gave you 1500 but you're going to gamble with this man? So Sal wins all the 1500 And Barrington's sitting there looking pitiful. You know, like he's Barrington's from San Francisco. And here we are in Berkeley. So Sal says, oh, man, you can have your car back. It's so, you know, and I'm like, I just thought, like I told Dennis, I just fell in love with him. I'm like, what good guy. He's too good for these fools because all of them were hustlers. And, oh, they thought they were so smart. And they said Sal was so country. And he didn't know anything. And Sal had a friend that they called Tudor. And they laugh at Tudor country. Sal and Tudor just took all their money. It was like, these kids are little punks. They don't know, you know, they don't know about this. And Sal had a group of friends from Mississippi, and it was a real business. You know, this gambling thing was real. They were serious. So, you know, it's like uh, East meets West in a sense, because Los Angeles, Mississippi met so-called San Francisco chic or slick or whatever. And they those country boys whooped those city boys, something terrible. Just Sal could acquire money. He was such a wonderful gambler. But I could whoop his behind in chess, and he did not like to lose. And I tell you, 
My brother-in-law was down there with me, and I was whooping Sal's behind so bad. He looks at me like, "Mm, you might not want to do that. But, you know, and that's what was funny. The chessboard was in the movie. And I like that he said, this is a black man's move, you know. So it's, I tell you, it's, it's a lovely movie because it didn't have the influence of white people saying, no, you don't act like this. You got to act like this. You know, Hollywood Shuffle is a wonderful example of what black people face in Hollywood. They want to say who you are, you know, and nobody knows who you are but you. And I like that Sal was able to get a little bit of that out. Can you tell me about more of the cast? How did Tito Fuentes get into the movie? Because Louis Rivera, Sal had a clothing store in Oakland, Mr. Sal's Fashions, and it was pretty nice. Nice leathers, nice shoes. I was trying to think of the type of shoe, but, you know, everything pretty much top shelf. And Louis Rivera worked for him in the store, as did Samaki, as did about everybody in it as did Karen Schuyler, who was our real estate broker. <laughs> but anyway, you know, want to be in a movie? Fine, come on, you know. It was just mostly, you know, nobody's professional. And gosh, it's like, do you want to fry fish today or you want to be in the movie? I, I'll be in the movie, you know. That's where he got a lot of the people. The professionals, I'd say, are Tanya Boyd, who played Sheila. And she went on to I thought do- that was her. Yeah, I didn't see her name in the credits, so I was just like, "That sounds like well, Tanya she Boyd." She didn't want them in the credits ah. you know? <laughs> because it was maybe possibly a conflict. I thought she was fabulous. I loved her, and I loved Samaki Bennett, who was just she had a bubbly personality. She was perfect for the role, and a lot of the people, Smokey, who's in the movie, was a dancer on Sal's TV show. You know he could roll his eyes, so they had to show that. You know, most of them were just Sal's friends or employees. But yeah, that's how he met uh, Tito Fuentes is Luis Rivera, who I'm not sure if he's Cuban, whatever, but he spoke Spanish. And Sal had a lot of Spanish friends. And I know we'd go to dinner, you know, and they spoke Spanish. And I think they were into baseball and stuff. So he met Tito just probably trying to sell Tito clothing, you know, because there was always something we can talk about. Sal had something that you needed. So they were friends. And of course, you know, all these guys have all these chicks, you know, so they've got another life that I don't really know about. So he asked Tito, did he want to be in the movie? And Tito says, yes. And, you know, years ago, I called him at the San Francisco Giants, you know, and told him, did he want, because I had a copy of the trailer. And Tito still is such a strong Spanish speaker. He calls and I'm, I say, oh, I'm sorry, you've got the wrong number. And he's like, no, 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 you know. And I said, oh, okay. I told him I had that and I sent it to him. And that was basically it, you know. I was excited just about the trailer, you know, and I, well, Because you know how you say, I was in a movie, and people say, ah, you weren't in a movie. You're lying. Where is it? Where's the proof? So Tito's assistants or whatever said, oh, yes, send it to us, you know. So I haven't tried to touch with him, but I'll be happy for him to really see it. Because, you know, people think you're 
shocking them a lot of time. <laughs> Belinda, can you talk about little Jamie Watts, who plays Sal's brother in the film, and told people that he was he was Sal's brother, and even changed his name to Sal's last name. Yes, he did. But but I don't think they were actually biologically related. Can can you talk about Jamie? Because he sounds like he was an incredible guy. Jamie and I don't know if you guys have heard the Ward boys, the Ward brothers of Oakland. Uh, some would say unsavory, but they were able to make a life for themselves. Not only that, they were innovators. They took their Cadillacs and they would, like people say today, pimp them out. But they would take a car and alter it to make it really slick. And I'll tell you, and you know this, Mike, Detroit would look at these pimps' cars, and the next couple of years, it was a Baritz. It was this. It was that. That's what I say about Black folks. Black folks have been the seasoning of America forever, but they get no credit for it. But they take your style, they take whatever you do and say, well, we're going to charge you for it. That's the kind of guys they were. And their sister, who was real sweet and a lesbian because she couldn't stand her brothers who misused women, she worked with Jamie, who, well, at the time, you know, back in the day, you couldn't say you were gay. He had a behind that was out of this world that you know, anybody, you know, women envied it. So, but he's this, I'm telling you, 300 pounder and his man was a 400 pounder and they were a force to be reckoned with. And they were basically henchmen until they became, uh, Jamie became an actor. But Jamie's true name is Brazil. He was a wonderful singer. He's saying he really liked gospel. And good at it. He met them, met Jamie at the clothing store he and Ernestine Ward worked at. And so they, they knew Sal had money. Sal went there to dress and they dress him sharp, you know, and they talked him into, well, why don't you open a store, Sal? You know, you spend this money with them. You could be running the show, you know. And so he opens a store and they work there and he had a store in San Francisco. I mean, in L.A. when I met him, I wanted to live in Oakland. We were in L.A. and we would fight all the time because I missed my family. And I'd head to the airport, put on my desert boots and I said, I'm out of here, buddy. I'd get to the airport there, Sal, sitting at the airport like, where are you going? But we went through a lot of that. And then he realized she wants to be in Oakland. So he conceded and came to Oakland, which he didn't want to do, but which turned out to be the greatest thing because he became a big fish in a little pond. In L.A., he was a little fish in a big pond. But he came to Oakland and set it on fire. He was able to do a lot that he had dreamed about, but he found that it was possible in Oakland because he'd come home and say, guess what I bought today? Well, he bought a rival boyfriend's clothing store. And I'm like, okay, but he just did it. He did whatever he wanted to. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just like, you know, not all of us have that ability. But I'll tell you one thing, he didn't care about money. And I think that's why he was able to make so much. 
because he could gamble and just get paid. Craig, I am so curious. What was it like the first time you get to see the footage? What is the state of the movie? The print, the picture was just a very faded red, pink, well-worn. I was excited that we found image, but I also knew this is going to be a quite a project to, to try and get it to a point where, I mean, I realized being a lost film and being such a special film, regardless of what condition we can get it in, that'll be a win. But I'm, I'm very happy with how it's looking. It's, it's much better than I thought it was going to be. You know, they put leader on the head and foot of reels, but, but still the head and foot of the reels are always the most damaged. So lots of, lots of dirt and scratches, the head and foot of reels. And then it, you know, the middle's a little bit better, but yeah, it's, it's been going really well. The color is, it's incredible how much color was still hiding in that faded red print. And it's, you know, it's obviously the the technology is, is, what made it possible but our first few tests we initially were just kind of blown away at how much color we could get out of it but then it was also bringing out a, a bunch of weird chromatic noise so the first first few times we were looking at okay if we can get it to this point then i'm going to have to somehow get rid of the noise and but then we were losing some detail did some more playing around and figuring out what how far we can push it before we get the noise and and we're in a good place now where the color looks great and it's not creating the noise so it's looks really good i'm i'm impressed and it's just uh, seeing the, the prints before and after i'm just like this is fantastic i mean hopefully not all our projects are like this but it's good to know that if this is all you've got you can still get a good final product out of it I was impressed because I noticed the most recent I've seen, I saw that Sal's socks were brown and tennis shoes, which he never wore, were blue, you know, and I says, wow, they are amazing. They have picked up every nuance. You mentioned the shoes and and I I mentioned it the other day, but there's a scene where after he'd gotten shot, the the girls, he's in bed and she's taking care of him and she's, she's, you know, helping him undress and, he throws his feet up on the bed and, and immediately I was, I just saw the shoes he was wearing and those had to have come from his store. They were the, they coolest, were amazing. They were the coolest shoes I've ever seen. I'm telling you, <laughs> they they were amazing. They were satin, potassois, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you can see that, and that like heel was white. Oh, see, in those fashions, I'm happy you picked up on that, Craig, because the latest one you can even see on his slacks that those were a pattern, you know, it was amazing. I'm telling you, Craig, you're a genius because you brought up. The clothes throughout the film are just incredible. Um, such a such a time capsule of not just the time, but also specifically like Oakland at that time. And uh, the, the whole movie is just an amazing time capsule. Yeah, the style and most of the clothing came from Sal's. He had a tailor, Jesse Strange actually, you know, would make the clothing. We've been trying to track him down or more information about him and we just keep hitting roadblocks. We don't we can't find anything. I saw in the credits that he's 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 in the movie and he's he's one of the commandos that does that at raid at night. I'm not sure which one he is, but so he's he's in the movie. All his clothes are in the movie, but I can't we we've been trying 
to to track him down and get some more information because the the clothing is incredible. It really is. He made me a beautiful suit too. He was quite a tailor. I remember when we first did a test, and it was only about ten seconds of footage to see if it was going to be possible for us to actually restore the the color to this badly faded element. And it's a scene where Sal is in his home and there's an abstract painting on the wall. And we sent it to Belinda and she goes, I recognize that painting. And wait, recognize that rug. And they shot in her and Sal's home. And he drives Belinda, your Maserati in the film. Is that right? Right. Lovely Maserati. And I was telling Dennis this story. What do I know? I'm a country gal from Omaha. But I'm driving the Maserati and I go to a car wash. And this man comes and gets out of his car with a towel and says, lady, this is a Maserati. You cannot go into that kind of car wash. Somebody on Facebook told me the other day that the that Maserati is worth about $350,000 now. <laughs> Don't I wish I had it. What happened? What happened? I ask you, what happened? What happened to that Maserati, Belinda? Sal ends up letting his woman from Sweden, Barbara, doll. He lets her take it and trade it in for something she wanted. But such is life. That's how he is, you know. And I didn't really. I liked the Maserati because I wanted it, but once I had it, it was no, you know, it had lost its. It's appeal for me, so you know. That's how most things are, like you said earlier. Wanting something is far more exciting than having something. Absolutely. I wound up with the station wagon. You know, I was always such an old mommy, even though I didn't have kids, but I had Sal's kids, you know. But I didn't wind up with my own until I'm 39. Jesus. And his woman would, she'd come from doggone Sweden. We had unlisted number and all that. So there, she was a very brilliant woman, though. She spoke six languages and, and uh, she had a baby by Sal and the baby stayed here in California with Sal's mother. And she went back to Sweden and lived her life. And anytime she would come to town, she was able to get in touch with him. So. You know, you have to deal with a lot. But I'm not particularly mad at any of the women because, of course, they're going to fall to Svengali. And he just had the right kind of rap. And, you know, I guess, I don't know. What do you do? There's a great story that's a kind of tangential story connected to Solomon King. So I was talking a couple of months ago with Bob Murawski, you may know, was Grindhouse releasing. He's also an Oscar-winning film editor who did The, the Hurt Locker and, and a lot of Sam Raimi's later films, Spider-Man movies and Doctor Strange recently. And he's a great guy. And he was partners with the late Sage Stallone, who was Sylvester Stallone's son, in Grindhouse releasing. He told me this incredible story because uh, I mentioned that we were restoring Solomon King. And he said uh, that... Years ago, after Planet Hollywood opened, they had this incredibly exclusive screening room, private screening room attached to Planet Hollywood that was just for the use of the three owners, Bruce Willis, Sylvester Stallone, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they never used it. 
So they had a projectionist on call and they had like waiters and everybody. So Bob and Sage would show all of their drive-in exploitation grindhouse movies that they loved and prints they had found. And they had somehow come across a print of Solomon King. So he said, yeah, we showed it multiple times, basically just for the two of us. in One of the most exclusive private screening rooms in Hollywood. Same time that this is a lost movie and nobody has seen it on a screen in 45 years. And to me, there's something so surreal and ironic about that story that Solomon King is a lost film. And yet in this incredibly exclusive screening room for the use of three of the biggest stars in Hollywood, his son and his business partner, what are they watching? Solomon King. Fantastic. And Bob was so happy to hear that the film was being Restored. I, I think he and Sage at one point had looked into the possibility of, of restoring it and just weren't able to to make it happen. He said, oh, God, I'm so glad that you're working with Belinda and you got elements from UCLA and the soundtrack. And the other great thing is that Belinda was generous enough to put the original soundtrack elements on deposit with UCLA Archive. And after Craig finishes the restoration, we're going to deposit a digital master file with UCLA. So whatever happens, the movie will be preserved and available through UCLA archives. So they'll have the original print, Belinda's soundtrack elements, and then our digital restoration so that Solomon King will never be lost again. And that's a, that's a really great thing. I mean, we're really excited about just about preserving this film before it, it disappeared forever. Did it help having the soundtrack elements as a separate thing for the the print? I mean, because sound is so important to the movie. The soundtrack itself is fantastic. Also, I noticed that they did the really smart thing of shooting a lot with voiceovers rather than doing, you know, sync sound stuff. So I imagine that having the soundtrack elements preserved separately might have actually been a helpful thing, but I could be completely wrong about that. The 35 millimeter track element that Belinda had is a bit cleaner and a better, a little bit better quality than, than the composite print. It worked out really well that we had both, though. I think the, the optical check that Belinda had may have been edit of the film, maybe when they showed it on television, because when we had the, when we had that, that digitized and they came to sync it with picture, there was quite a bit missing. So there are little sections well, we had to go back to the composite print audio because the 35 track element, the original element pieces had been taken out. Belinda, do you know anything about the, the re-release of it as secret agent Lucky King? Cause it came out under two titles, Solomon King. That's the print that, that we were able to borrow from UCLA and it has the Solomon King title. But I also know that, that there are, um, trade ads and posters under the secret agent lucky king was that the same version of the film was re-edited do you know the film we see today has parts taken out like the doctor sal's real doctor was in it one of people's worlds editor of people's world his daughter was in it barbara stevenson and those parts were taken out so Lucky Agent King is I heard that it was in foreign markets. I never saw it. I saw like a promo for it, but I never saw 
lucky Agent King. I thought they just kind of mixed it with something else somehow, changed it, altered it a bit, and re-released it as Lucky Agent King. And I think it's sold in Mexico, maybe. I'm not sure if Africa or India. Someone tried to get international. And because he was such a Renaissance man, I guess, I, I tried to get the film in the Library of Congress. And they didn't have it. So I don't know what, what steps you take to get it there. But because he was his own man, I think might have been bad in a sense that he didn't get it put in the Library of Congress. When we realized how much the restoration was going to require, Craig and I kind of put our heads together and said, wow, this is going to be a major undertaking for us because not only is the scanning of the film, but it's the transfer of the audio and it's going to need some cleanup there and, and finding the miss missing pieces from the optical track on the print. And then color grade restoration, which is really one of the major aspects of this. And um, we pretty much quickly agreed. We said, you know, we have, we have to do this because the film has to be saved and preserved no matter what's involved. But one of the reasons why we recently launched the Kickstarter was to try and offset some of those restoration costs. We'd already pretty much said, you know, come hell or high water, we are going to restore the film. You know, it has to be preserved. But we've been really lucky with Belinda's cooperation and support, and now the support of all of the people who have, who have contributed to the Kickstarter that we're able to offset some of those costs that we had basically just been fronting out of our own pockets for the past year and a half, two years. So that that's a really good thing. And the film, you know, is scheduled to come out on Blu-ray and uh, digital later this year. And we're going to have an amazing two-hour interview with Belinda. And we have several commentary tracks and we have a new essay for the booklets and so we have a lot of incredible extra we've got, we've got i know we were talking about our house independent theaters struggling but we've got we've we've got some theaters reaching out to us already just hearing about the kickstarter and hearing that it's being restored and we've had some theaters reach out to us and they're like hey can want to show this that's that's encouraging <laughs> it is that's wonderful well and we're we're also hoping if we can you know, once, once the focus really has been on getting the film itself restored as, as, you know, beautifully as possible. Um, as, you know, the way that hopefully Sal would have wanted it to be seen and certainly as Belinda would like it to be seen now. We're hoping that, that early next year we may be able to do a re-release limited edition on vinyl of the original soundtrack and possibly put in a couple of the, um, 45 singles that Sal also put out on Sal Wah. I think there are four or five. And most of them actually had some connection to Solomon King. Like the B-side is like the theme from Solomon King, dot, dot, dot. And they're really amazing soul funk numbers. So, so we'd love to be able to include some of those as well from his own record label. So we're looking into that. Our, our primary focus right now is the movie itself, but we would love to see if it's possible to make the soundtrack available because the original copies are, are now like there's one there's one on eBay right now for three hundred three hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, they're really it's really expensive. And plus, it, it just makes sense. It's it's the soundtrack that started this whole thing. 
I just found it incredible that Dennis is a filmic encyclopedia and a huge record collector. And the combination of he found this record that he knew nothing about that was a soundtrack to a film he knew nothing about, that is a rarity. <laughs> um, and so then he, he, he sent me an email. He's like, I found this soundtrack. He's like, check it out. Cause there's a, there was like a YouTube that someone had uploaded the, the theme music. And so I, I, I clicked on the link and it, the first few notes, I'm like, we need to find this movie. Like, like the soundtrack alone, like we need to find this movie. <laughs> I was so happy the day that I connected with Belinda though. And I think I, I got off the phone and I called, I told my wife, Maria, everybody in my family, because my, uh, my father-in-law and partner, girlfriend of many years live in Oakland by Lake Merritt. And so I had enlisted their help. All of their neighbors, I said, does anybody who's lived in Oakland for a long time know anything about Sal Watts or Mr. Sal's fashions? And we kept hitting dead ends. And the day I actually incredible connected- detective work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and the, so you excited. were very excited. I remember, I th- yeah, it couldn't have been a few minutes after you hung up with her, you called me and you're like, I found Belinda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, though. Uh, that's why I do believe in divine intervention. Completely agree with you. I don't think there's any way that it was just coincidence that brought us all together because most lost films are lost for a reason. And and despite all of the efforts of of uh, restorationists and and film lovers, they they remain for the most part elusive. And and you do hit nothing but dead ends, and you may find a bit here or a bit there. But the fact that we were able to connect with you, find the sound elements, find a print that we had the means to digitally restore it and bring back about ninety five percent of the color, and that it will be seen in a really beautiful version, certainly the best it's been seen since it was originally released. It's kind of supernatural. <laughs> it's just like it's, it's it looks so much better than it ever could have looked. In 73. It's amazing. Not only were we excited, we heard the soundtrack, we were excited, we found the film, we were excited, but still, we had never seen it. So there was a little trepidation of like, is it any good? You know, like we could we could go through all this work and then we finally watch it and go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but luckily that was not the case. So it is it is a fantastic film. It, uh, I mean, it's got I just shared the little before and after on Twitter the other day of this shot that, that starts in a, you, you don't know it, but it's a telephoto zoom and then zooms back to a sniper inside a van. And I was like, that's not amateur filmmaking. Like, no, that's cinematic genius. That's the best shot. That is a very cool shot. And then uh, there's some, there's some great fight scenes in it. There, there's, you know, there's people stunts, you know, that, fire bombs going off and there's people running through the fire you know it's it's a cool movie it's got some lighthearted like sal's character is yeah he is the the, the gung-ho commando guy but he's also really fun and 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 kind of lighthearted. i'm a huge prince in the time fan and and when i watched it the first time i i was like he's kind of like if morris day were a badass like commando like he's still got that 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 kind of a little bit of a swagger, but it's with a little tongue in cheek. He's having fun. I love everything about it. I'm with you, Craig. I thought that shot was classic. 
And then when they shot her, you know, it went to slow motion. I thought it was just classic. And I know whoever set that up really knew their stuff to pan from that porch all the way back to the van. Just classic. And, you know, that's 50-something years ago. So, And I've often wondered watching it, because it feels like it keeps getting better the further into the film you get. And, the, you know, these are all mostly first-time filmmakers. I, I often wondered, did they shoot this in order, and they just kept getting better? <laughs> it's really something. There's some great stuff in there. Yeah, of course, the editor, you know, and I don't know who the editor was, but they certainly deserve uh, some credit because that's, you know, they say a lot lines up on the cutting room floor. It looks like somebody got their lesson in that film and Sal must have had some really good people working with them. I know a lot of the guys wore multiple hats, like Scarzo is supposed to be the makeup artist, really. And I was a barber. I still didn't know why Sal didn't give me credit. I wasn't registered barber, but I was in barber college when, you know, he was making it. Well, Linda, Craig, and Dennis, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the whole thing restored. I gave to the Kickstarter. I hope everybody within the sound of my voice also gives to the Kickstarter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're doing a great job. I always appreciate all the stuff that Deaf Crocodile does and just being able to bring this film to the fore. Bravo to all of you. And thank you so much, Belinda, for all these great stories. Oh, my pleasure. Those are the angels. Craig and Dennis made it all possible. So, And we should hopefully have a new trailer to release in a few weeks. So I'm really excited about having that. So that'll get a lot of eyeballs on it and get people excited. So... And it is going to have a major festival premiere. It's going to be announced in about a week, which is fantastic. And we are also hoping to set up a screening local premiere in the San Francisco, Oakland, in the Bay Area as well. Um, Fantastic. But it it will have it in um, late September, early October. There's going to be a major festival premiere here in, in the U.S., which is great. So glad that we were able to connect with Belinda and shine a light on her and Sal's contribution. And people are excited about this, you know, had a person today reach out to me online just saying, you know, there's a theater near me that this would be great to play at. Like, you know, please, you know, let me know if I can help you get it there. Like, you know, so people are people want to see it. They're, you know, they're excited to see it. So that's um, it's it's going to take on a life of its own. You watch. Yeah. And then the rappers are going to want some segments, you know. That would be so great if there's a new song that comes out that uses the theme music. They, they sample the music. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, because, you know, I was listening and it sounded like, you know, Stanford, Sanford and Sons theme music. Well, somebody, will, look, there's Netflix, there's Hulu. I mean, anything is possible these days. Mike, thank you so much for having yeah, us thank on. You. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much.
All right, we are back and we are talking about Solomon King. And I just kind of wanted to dive into the uh, idea of other missing films, specifically black action films from the 70s or even just black films from the 70s. I know, like, for me, I've been looking for, like, I know Al Freeman's stuff is getting restored, I want to say, through Milestone. Oh, really? I might be mixing him up with Lionel Rogosin, but I think it's al freeman stuff so both of those guys they have things that are on my list i want to say that there might be a copy of lionel Rogosin's black fantasy in a university in wisconsin i happen to track down a print but it's a print so it doesn't do me any good what am i going to do with that there's um ossie davis directed countdown at Cusini. there's a print of that at, at in at ucla um and and but there's there is a that print was mastered off of a 35 millimeter print, but nobody knows where that 35 millimeter print is. It does exist and it's out there somewhere, but will it ever really see the light of day? Is is, is questionable at best. Uh, the only thing I really know in that category is: Have you guys ever heard of a thing called Black the Ripper? As near as I can tell, it was never actually made. That was um wasn't it was like Frank Sil not Frank Silveri. Celetri, I think it is. He, he was, he did, um, uh, uh, Blackenstein. You know, Blackenstein was supposed to have, was supposed to have a sequel and it never had it. And, and I think Black the Ripper was just something that got announced in the trades because there was a, there was a handful of those movies that would get announced in the pre production phases, usually because they were hoping to get more financing or get distribution. That's what I thought Solomon King was for a long time, because there's a couple movies that are still in question. Uh, there's a movie called Shorty the Pimp, in which there's there is actually a soundtrack to it. That soundtrack is by uh, Don Julian and the Larks, who also did the um, soundtrack for Savage with James Iglehart. But if Sh Shorty the Pimp was ever actually made, nobody seems to know. Um, it's a great soundtrack, by the way. There's there's not too many of them, and I've seen some of them. I've seen Countdown and Cusini, and it's like there's people that would probably argue with me. It's an interesting artifact, but in terms of a movie you sit to watch to be entertained by, it ain't this one, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. There's a movie that uh, Yafet Koto directed and starred in called The Limit from 72. I'm totally unfamiliar with that one. I've seen the poster, but there's there's no trailer for it. There's no I, I know there's there's um there's some listings of it for that it played in some theaters. When when Yafet Koto was still alive, I would fairly regularly reach out to him about the movie and he would never say anything about it. But he was also a very interesting person in the last years of his life. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> To put it mildly, yes, very interesting. I think he always was somewhat interesting, just it got a lot worse towards the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, um, for those that don't know, he, I mean, he was very much a firm believer in extraterrestrials and alien abductions and claimed to have been abducted n numerous times. So, and then you would like talk about Zion as well. And her contention is that the Jews are amazing with the space lasers to start the fires as a false pretense to help the other Jews with their conniving plots. Something happened to him at some point. Um, but yeah, how, how the limit never, 
it doesn't exist anymore. And that was, and, and you know, that one was distributed, I believe, by Columbia Pictures or something like that. I, I, I know somewhere in my collection, I've got the poster for it, the poster and the press kit. Those are always the things that when you're, you're doing the, the research, the more artifacts you can find, if there's the newspaper uh, reviews or showtimes, then you know, okay, it existed. Somebody, somebody showed this somewhere. The limit is one because I, I, as an actor, I love Yafet Kobo, and and early seventies, mid seventies, he was he was nailing it. You know, one film that was lost that came out or kind of snuck out. I want to say about two years ago. I think it was right around the beginning of the pandemic was um, a film that is known in some circles as Super Dude and in others as The Hang-Up, and it was directed by Henry Hathaway, of all people. The version that I saw, which looks beat to shit, but the version that I saw doesn't feel complete. I want to say that it ran only about 70 minutes, and, and the purported running time is an hour and 34 and I don't go by, you know, running times on IMDb or anything. I just go by how a movie feels. Mm-hmm. 70 minutes felt way too short for this film. And it just felt like it was missing stuff. So I'm hoping that eventually I either get proven wrong. And yes, it was 70 some minutes long or that the total print shows up someplace and that it, you know, actually gets restored. I mean, that was another one where it was like, pretty decent movie it wasn't the greatest thing in the world i would say i was more pleased with solomon king than i was with super dude but it was nice just to be able to finally sit down and see it it was a good just like a standard police story it really wasn't a black exploitation film though the main character was an african-american gentleman i will double check my copy of that movie because i have a um a, 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 a copy of it i don't i can't remember the runtime. And, but that was mastered directly off of a, a 35 millimeter print, which was beat up pretty bad because I was wondering if it was, if it was intact enough to, to truly be restored or not. Um, but I was more impressed with Solomon King than I was with, um, Super Dude slash the hang up. And, and in part because there were so many people involved in Super Dude that had Henry Hathaway. There's people who had pedigree and, and that, so super dude feels like the dying gasp of, of a film career that it had seen better days. Whereas, uh, Solomon King seemed like the, the desperate attempt to, to, um, bring some sort of monster to life. Um, and, and, and I think that's why the film was, was more impressive. Marky Bay is in, um, super dude. I can't remember who the actor is. But he was also not the most charismatic guy. So William Elliott, which what else was he in? So right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that, Michael Lerner was in that one, and George Murdoch as well. And it was like, whoa. Well, all right. I mean, those guys. Even if you don't know them by me saying their names, you definitely know their faces. Oh, and I, I love George Murdoch. So he's you know he's always great. Yeah, I'll have to look and see. Um, I I know. I think I know who still has that print. That was one of those because I was approached by someone and who knew the person who owned the print. Um, and, and I don't know what happened with it. Um, but I, but I do know for a fact that there are a minimum of two prints out there because there's the one that I watched. And then I know they did a screening in, in, in New York, maybe in Brooklyn, like within the last 10 years. And that was, that was from a, that might have been the print that 
you're seeing. Um, I think you might be right. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, this is interesting. Maybe we found another film that can be restored because that's what the world needs is more of that. So, well, and that one felt like it was put out by a major label or a major studio as well to have Henry Hathaway with it. And it just felt like it was more, you know, something that you would have seen and something that should be out on, I don't know, the Warner Archive label, something like that. Yeah. Well, there's, and, and some of these movies were, um, a fair amount of them were directed and by TV directors. And, and so they were made during the off season when, um, you know, when there was, when there wasn't say episodes of emergency or, or the rookies or Starsky and Hutch or whatever being shot. I know that like Paul Bogart directed a few and, and he was TV and Arthur Marks had come out of TV primarily in the sixties and, um, and and then you, when you start looking at the crews, you see there are a lot of people who you know made their living either in B movies or or TV. And I think I I think Super Dude might have been one of those. I, I I'll go down the rabbit hole, but I never go one hundred percent down the rabbit hole of anything for the most part. But it's it's always interesting to try to put the pieces together and figure out you know how some of these movies got made and lost for that matter too. There's just one more I want to mention, which is um, a film called The Long Night, a.k.a. Steely Brown. That one has Dick Anthony Williams in it, who I always love to see. That one was, it feels like another passion project because it was written, directed, and stars Woody King Jr., who Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if he's still acting, but he's definitely, he was in one of the Men in Black films, and it might be that latest one. And... That one, there's a trailer. Uh, somebody put that out on to archive.org. So it's like, all right, again, kind of seems legit. You know, you're not going to make a trailer for a movie that doesn't exist and give it an alternate title and an alternate poster design. Yeah, Woody King was, um, he, he came from the world of live theater. I can't remember if he was part of the, the Negro Ensemble Company or not. But when you start getting to know some of the actors and people from that era, his name comes up a lot because he was really big in the New York theater scene. Uh, Michael Schultz also has a film that's missing. And, and, but Steely Brown also, um, yeah, the long night I've been, I've been looking for that one forever. And the problem is, is that like a lot of the people who made these movies are, are in some cases, the entire cast and crew's gone. Yeah. Woody King. Cause he, he there was, I was I was reading an interview with him as it related to theater, and and that's what got me really interested about and and as you mentioned, Dick Anthony Williams, who to me is one of the like unsung character actors of all time. Um, even even in you know something like um, the Anderson tapes or or, or or a film like that, I just absolutely love him. That's now you yeah, see. Now I'm going to have to go down that rabbit hole again too. Um, and and but you never know what's you know you. in some university archives or or the UCLA film archives or or um, prints that are uh, registered um, with the, the Library of Congress. There's there's a lot of stuff there that. Um, but it's just a question of figuring out what's there and where it's stored and are all the elements there and did they survive and all of that. Yeah, who has the rights? That's the other thing too. That's Countdown at Cusini. One of the big problems is is that the rights are owned by. Um, it was it was a very weird backstory as to how that movie got financed, but it was financed in part by uh, a sorority, and so they sold shares. And there's like 
you know, conceivably several hundred owners of this thing. And, and the movie just turned out it's, it's something of a mess. I've read a couple of reviews of it that were, it was clear that either the people who were writing the review hadn't actually seen the movie or they were reviewing it based on the idea of what it could have been and not what it was. Um, and, you know, cause if you've ever watched, you know, Ossie Davis directed Gordon's War, which is like, I love that movie and I really do like Cotton Comes to Harlem. And this countdown at Cusini ain't that, you know, um, in fact, Al Freeman Jr. was supposed to be in that movie. Um, I'm going to have to do this research on it. This is the, if Al Freeman stuff is, is actually getting restored or not. I hope I didn't lead you astray with that one. <laughs> well, you know, even if you did, there's, we, we have to have hope or something, you right. know, so <laughs> cinematic hope. Uh, it raises the question, what else does Sal Watts do? I mean, other movies? Nothing. This is it. Yeah, nothing that we know of. Right. That's what uh, I, you know, I, I'm hoping that there'll be some interesting stuff on this Blu-ray. Like there, there might be some, um, you know, more conversations. I've seen one interview, a uh, brief interview with Sal Watts's widow. So, um, I would like to know more. I'd love, I, that's just, I'm endlessly fascinated with that stuff. I just jumped on IMDb and his only other credit for Sal Watts is, uh, playing a part in a comedy called Big Time in 1977. Oh, that movie's terrible. That's one of those sort of movies. That's, um, Smokey Robinson helped finance that movie. Big time. Um, I can't remember who the director was. Um, that's, that's interesting. I should do some cross referencing of that because I wonder how many people involved in big time also work on Solomon King. Oh man, what a cast this movie has though. Christopher Joy, Tobar Mayo, Roger E. Mosley, RIP. I mean, this is crazy. Some of these names in here. Yeah. Uh, Jane Kennedy's in it. I, I believe it's fairly easy to find. It might even be on um, YouTube. And it's 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 the worst kind of movie in that it's a comedy that's not particularly funny. Oh, yeah, you know, well, was, is, yeah. is, I think even R.J. Evans is in that one. Is R.J. Evans in that? There, there's one that I've seen where R.J. Evans is like doing a really bad Humphrey Bogart impersonation throughout the whole thing. And it might be this one. Um, maybe I can, I can, that can be one of my books in the future is the making of Solomon King. There are stories there for sure. I'm sure there are. And I'm sure there's plenty of people that would love to tell you too, especially the neighborhood kids, the people that were around during that time, because you guys have both used the term time capsule and that's what this is, man. And you're using the folks in the neighborhood, using local talent as much as you can. I'm sure. Okay. We all have something to look forward to then, don't we? <laughs> Well, thank you so much, guys, for coming on and talking with me about this today. So, Leon, what is happening with you, sir? Uh, I'm currently working as editor on a surreal feature called Nyctophobia, which is uh, hopefully going to hit the festival circuit later 2022. Uh, um, also, if you're anywhere near New York City, I host a monthly very casual event in the back of a bar called Attack of the 50-Foot Movie. You can find out all about it at 50footmovie.com. And David, what's happening with you, sir? Well, right now I'm, I'm running a crowdfunding campaign for the second printing of the uh, the 25th anniversary edition of, of Badass Mofo, which is a scene that I did back in the 90s. I successfully funded it last year, and all the copies are gone. So I'm, I'm doing a... Um, uh, a second printing of that. And that's 
largely my um, love letter to black exploitation. And in fact, there's a there's a piece in there about lost films. And now that Solomon King has been found, I, I there's this part of me that wants to go back and edit the book, and 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 but I'm not going to do that. Um, and and then I just you know I, I work in comics and all sorts of interesting comic projects going on, and um, mostly just trying to enjoy life as much as humanly possible. It feels like you are always working on stuff. Just I always see these uh, projects coming out, and it's amazing. I I try because you know I'm like a shark. If I stop swimming, I'm I'm going to drown. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. There he is. Known as a hit man. Satisfaction guaranteed all your money back. When you want somebody snuffed, this is the catch and call to fill the contract. He didn't come to stay just for a payday. He got by, <laughs> but he won't get away. He watched and waited to destroy his prey. But the king and his brother won't let him enjoy his pay. Ain't that nothing? No morals, no principles. Let me tell you what he does. He takes a lie for money to spend. That won't help him much Cause he killed the king's friend He's in trouble cause the king and his brother will seek revenge <laughs> Violence is no stranger to the king But it's a challenge in a way He can greet it and defeat it He made it to the top Before he retired from the CIA He's not rude, he's no super dude. The man's for real, he never fake it. He'll give you his right arm, brother, don't ever try to take it. Just another man, though they call him king. That's all he ever proclaimed to be. Everyday people, just like you and me. But a hit man, <laughs> ain't that nothing? Let me tell you what he does for a living. He takes a life. Money to spend. But oh, it won't happen much. Cause he killed the king's friend. The hitman's in trouble cause the king and his brother were secret in. Oh yeah. There he is again. The hitman. Ain't that nothing? Now there's some said ain't right, cause the lady was white. But that's thinking with a small mind. Maybe no one ever told them that a heart is blind. What kind of cat would shoot a lady in the back? Would shoot a lady in the back? Ain't that nothing?
Thank you.